The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. It's Culture Club time and we're delighted to be joined by the novelist Kathleen McMahon who has just published her fourth book, The Home Scar. And just before I ask about all your Culture Club choices, tell us about this new novel. What's the story behind it? Well, it's a story of two siblings who have kind of drifted apart later in life and who lost their mother while they were children in tragic circumstances. And an event happens that brings them back to Connemara, where they spent a summer with their mother when they were children, a really happy summer. And I suppose the book is a way of exploring memory and the process of going from childhood to adulthood and how you come to understand the things that have happened in your family as a result of processing memories and really how imperfect a witness memory is to our lives, where these characters are now in their 30s and the things that have happened have really influenced their lives they're really not quite sure what did happen and they only have fragmented memories of their mother and the events that led to her death. So the novel is really that process for them of going back to a place that was important to them and trying to put the jigsaw pieces together and figure out what happened. What sparked your imagination to go in that direction? Well, I had in mind the story of... Do you know where it actually came from? It came from... I heard a documentary, a radio documentary about Michael Jackson and a summer he spent in Ireland with the children. This is going way back. Amazing story. Down in Mullingar, wasn't it? Yeah, and there was a recording studio there that uh, Paddy Dunning, I think, had. That's right. Amazingly, they came and spent this secret summer there. And what touched me about that story was that the children had a really happy summer and it was kind of normal. People were making pancakes and, you know, they were playing in the woods I found that so touching to think of children who'd had this very turbulent life, enjoying this one summer of really normal childhood with their father, who subsequently died. And I thought about writing about that, but I'm not crazy about intruding on real people's lives. Um, And it wasn't really important that it was them. The story for me was about children whose lives subsequently fall apart and the importance of one happy summer. And how maybe it would be a way into their understanding of their lives if they went back there. Now, you didn't set it in Mullingar, though. You went to Connemara. Because Connemara is somewhere you know well, isn't it's it? kind of a better... No, no offence to Mullingar. I, I, was, I was pulled in by the gorgeous landscape of Connemara and the beaches and everything. And something happened that seemed to me to really tie into the story. You know, the way Connemara is so bereft of trees, it's almost kind of ghostly. And when I was doing research for this book, I discovered that it would all once have been forested. Many people probably know this already. Um, but it's hard to imagine when you consider how desolate and beautifully barren it is. I know. And you think it would all have been covered with native forest 10,000 years ago. And then I was at home one day and I opened the paper and I saw a report, this photograph that really stopped me in my tracks. And what had happened, this was back in 2014, an Atlantic storm on the south coast of Connemara near Spiddle had peeled back a beach and revealed the remains of one of those ancient native forests. And I hopped in the car and I drove down there and it's still there. It's the most extraordinary thing to see because the stumps of the trees are there and they're seven and a half thousand years old. And they were, I mean, you can, you can run your hand through the grain of the wood. It's the most amazing thing. 
So my novel opens with that because it just seemed to me to be exactly the story I was telling about the past is there. You may not be able to see it. And then something happens that peels it back. And you can see it and touch it. Okay, fascinating. The book is called The Home Scar and we'll get to your favourite books and novelists later in the Culture Club. But let's get started with music as we do with all our guests. And uh, we ask people to nominate the first piece of music they ever bought. In your case, it's a single. And uh, what do you remember? Well, I feel this is really misleading because it's Blondie and Blondie has aged so well and she's so cool and I would love to think I was a Blondie kind of girl. It's Heart of Glass, Childminder, gave it to me 1978 so I would have been eight and I remember so well the magic of that single it was such a treat pulling it out of the sleeve and onto the turntable it's such an amazing song I mean it's still dated so well but it is slight false advertising even though it's true to say that that was my first single because I was definitely more of an ABBA girl I was a really conventional kid total blue stocking so I think Blondie would have seemed a bit dangerous to me David Bowie and all those things that in retrospect I really should have chosen um, when I was singing along to ABBA with the hairbrush. Anyway, it is a fact that Heart of Glass was my first single. And I'm glad you chose it because we can hear a bit of it. From the 1978 album Parallel Lines, there's lots of great songs on that album still. Okay, that's a great place to start. So, favourite album. You've given us a bunch of albums. You couldn't limit yourself to one and that's understandable. Take us through some of them and then we'll play a bit of one of them. Okay, I think for my youth, my teens, it's Prince. It was Prince all the way. And you know the way at that age when you're a teenager, you're defined by what you listen to. And we were definitely Prince fans, my friend and friends and I. So, all I have to hear is any of those songs, Raspberry Beret, and I'm with my bunch of pals dancing uh, at some dodgy nightclub in around about 1985 or 86. Um, and I think if I had to say one album, it's Parade. And we love that film. The film is actually brilliant, Under the Cherry Moon with Kristen Scott Thomas. It was her first movie. And it's a kind of weird film, shot in black and white in the south of France. And I went back and watched it recently again and I thought it was going to be awful and it's actually really cool. Um, but Prince can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned. And you know the way an album kind of is the soundtrack to your life at a particular time? When I hear Parade, I'm walking along the King's Road in London. I'm 16. I'm over there minding my aunt's daughter for the summer. 
I've got 50 quid sterling in my pocket, my week's wages, and I've got platform sandals and I'm bouncing along listening to Parade with my Walkman and all is well in the world. Well, we've got from the album Parade, Kiss. Prince and Kiss from the album Parade. Did you ever see him, Kathleen, play live? Never. I didn't go to my dying regret. One of the best live artists you would ever Enslaying. be fortunate enough to say. I didn't see him in Slane. I saw him in Parky Cueve. I saw him in the RDS. Oh, in the Three you. Arena. He was absolutely oh, magnificent. Stop the mistakes we make. Oh my God. Anyway, give us more of the albums that you'd listen to because I understand there are some that you have to listen to in the car because you're not allowed to play them at home. Yeah, well... In my house, and my, my husband is responsible for this, there's good music and bad music. And in fairness now, he knows an awful lot about music and I don't. But good music is his music. And I accept that it's good. It's Otis Redding and Art Pepper and James Brown. And I mean, the man knows his music, right? And he has introduced me and our daughters to the most wonderful music. And one of them in particular takes his very hard line on my musical tastes. But I'm happy to say that's the great thing about having twin daughters is the other twin sides with me. And we take refuge in the car when we want to listen to my socially unacceptable music, which is I like Julio Iglesias. I like um, Christy Hennessy. I like, oh, God, this gets really bad. I mean, recently... I heard Celine Dion on the radio. Now, that would just never be tolerated in my house. And my daughter and I took to the car and we sing along. I'm definitely with your husband there. You also, though, have some that you agree on, including Joni Mitchell and the album Blue. Oh, look, everybody in our house loves Joni Mitchell's Blue. What a beautiful, what a perfect album. And we listen to that over and over again. And we listen to, we like Paolo Nutini. We agree on him. We agree on Bob Dylan. Uh, Desire, I think, is a wonderful album. And anytime I hear that album, I think it has such a sense of adventure and travel, romance in Durango and Black Diamond Bay. And you just I want to be there in a Panama hat up on the veranda uh, with life happening to you. Just I love storytelling in songs. And Dylan obviously is a great storyteller, you know, um, and a song with a narrative is a wonderful thing. That album is brilliant for that. But yeah, Joni Mitchell's Parade, Dylan's Desire. And I love the Cowboy Junkies. I think that was the other one I chose, the Trinity Sessions, which is a beautiful album. Now, favourite bands and art artists. You have a big love for Talking Heads and David Byrne. Yeah, David Byrne. What a cool person, huh? 
I don't know if you saw the concert recently, maybe two or three years ago in the O2. No, and everyone I know who's at it said it was just magnificent. I know, it's really annoying to go on about it, but it was just sublime, absolutely sublime. Um, And I'm a great admirer of his anyway. I mean, I think he's a really cool human being, you know. He has this project called Reasons to be Cheerful, and he tours around America. I don't know whether you've heard of it. And he has a website and a magazine. Instead of highlighting bad things that are happening, he highlights good things that are happening, like where a prison is being run well, or um, it's a really interesting concept, which is let's focus on what's working. Yeah. So he's a guy who's really engaged with the world. Um, But as a band, yeah, I mean, now when my friends and I are doing some kitchen dancing late of an evening, it would be, this is the place, Talking Heads uh, would be the first track that goes on. You also have fallen in love with Bruce Springsteen, which I believe it took you a while. Yeah, it's a funny thing, because back to that thing of what defines you when you're young, you know, I was not a Bruce Springsteen girl. I was Prince. And it's like choosing your football team, you know. And I thought Bruce Springsteen was kind of a cold cheese or... uh, What? (laughs) (laughs) And fellas, you know, a lot of the lads were into Bruce Springsteen. And then I was in my kitchen one morning, but... 12 years ago and I heard Brilliant Disguise on the radio and I thought wow that's such an amazing song and I totally fell for him and it's actually I think as you go on in life it's great to understand that if a lot of people like something there's probably something in it you know and it was nice to discover that about Bruce so much so that I wrote a novel about a Bruce Springsteen fan my first book was about a Bruce Springsteen fan and I actually included a lot of lyrics in it because this guy kind of loved Bruce Springsteen and lived his life by Bruce Springsteen. But what I discovered is really expensive to include song lyrics in a novel. So it's a really tricky thing about novel writing, because I think, I mean, our conversation today really illustrates that. We live our lives with music running through them. So when you're writing a novel, it's kind of inaccurate if you don't mention the music that is a part of the person's life. But it's very expensive if you do. Because of copyright reasons. Yes, so I had to go into negotiation with Bruce Springsteen's lawyers in New York over, I think I ended up cutting 10 lyric references down to five. And it was $250 a shot and emailing back and forth with this uh, corporate firm of lawyers. But in the end, the funny thing is, I had to go into the Bank of Ireland on Bagot Street and get a draft, not to big fat New York Lawyers Incorporated. But to Bruce. To Mr. Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> $1,250. They must have looked at you like you were deranged. They thought I was mental. <laughs> so Bruce owes me a pint, I feel. You also have given us a track. We're going to play a Bruce Springsteen song that was covered by Linda Ronstadt and Amy Lou Harris. Now tell us about your love for Linda Ronstadt. Oh my God, I love Linda Ronstadt. You know when you just fall in love with somebody? I mean, I love her from... She bursts into the scene in the 70s in LA in the Troubadour. And I think she was 17. She'd come out of New Mexico, this uh, very musical family. And just the talent bursting out of her is unbelievable. And I mean, as I told you already, I know nothing about music, but I think people who know about music accept that she had one of the great voices. And her story is just amazing. She really became a superstar. One of the first female front women to be a star in their own right, you know. And then she went on and made an album of Mexican folk songs, which the record company told her she couldn't do, that it would be a disaster. And it was the best-selling 
non-English language album of all time. So she's a great example to me of just an artist who does her thing and it's magic. Well, let's hear her and Amy Lou Harris singing Across the Border. Tonight my bag is packed Tomorrow I'll walk these tracks That will lead me across the border Tomorrow my love and I We'll sleep neath auburn skies Somewhere across the border We'll leave behind my dear Pain and sadness we found here And we'll drink from the Brazos muddy waters Where the sky grows gray and white We'll meet on the other side There across the border For me you'll build a house High up on a grassy hill Somewhere across the border Linda Ronstadt there with Amy Lou Harris. Of course, Linda Ronstadt enjoying something of a renaissance of presence because of a long, long time been featured in The Last of Us, episode three, and it's become a major hit again as a result of that. I did not know that. I feel so vindicated. That's good. Well, and I'd recommend that as a TV show as well to watch The Last of Us. We're going to take a break. We'll come back with your favourite gig and movies and books and plays. It's Kathleen McMahon with The Culture Club here on The Last Word of Today FM, back after we've had the traffic. Welcome back to The Culture Club here on The Last Word of Today FM and Kathleen McMahon, the author of The Home Scar, is with us today. And just to finish with music, which, as you say, plays such a major part in your life as it does in so many people's lives. Best gig you were at and why? I think it has to be Leonard Cohen in Kilmainham. You're uh, far from the first person who's given I us that know, answer. I wish I could be more original, but no, no, my there's God. there's no problem with that. It was a glorious evening, summer evening, you'll Kilmainham, with the city spread out underneath us. I went with my husband. He wouldn't be a massive fan of Leonard's, but wasn't objecting either. My sister-in-law, Memma Byrne, and my husband's aunt, Isolt O'Brien. And Isolt was well in her 70s by then. She's in her late 80s now. And she was familiar with Leonard Cohn because she'd, all her kids, it was the music her kids played in the house when they were growing up. So she knew all this music really well, but it was the first concert she'd ever been to. And she packed a picnic basket with her raincoat and a warm jumper and some water. And I don't, I don't know what she thought we were going on some massive boat journey or something. But it was such a beautiful concert. And you could see that he at that stage was completely stunned by this revival that had happened, this late life gift of he'd come out on tour and he wasn't really sure whether anyone would turn up and the love for him was massive and he was so elegant and graceful in his fedora and, you know, he was conversing with the audience. I remember him saying, oh, it's great to be here in this city where there's a poet in every pub and a, and a, and a genius in every bedroom. And my sister-in-law jumped up and said, not in our house. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, he started rattling off all the antidepressants he'd been on over the years. And he was saying, you know, I've been on Sertraline and I've been on Lexapro. And he's, he's rattling them off. And then it's my 
husband's aunt who's leaping up and saying, I know them all. <laughs> um, so it was just one of those evenings where a pure joy, everybody got to be themselves and the love for Leonard was something else. Let's move on to movies. Uh, what have you picked for us? Well, funny, when I was picking my movies, it occurred to me that I'm kind of picking movies not just for the movie in its entirety, but for the scene, a particular scene. I love The Deer Hunter. And I think, I love the whole movie. It's amazing. I love the long wedding scene at the beginning. But there's a scene in the movie when Robert De Niro is coming back from the war in Vietnam and he's been decorated and he's in his uniform with his medals. And all his friends in this mining town in Pennsylvania have are having a party to welcome him back. And he comes in the taxi and he sees the bunting out and he can't go in and he gets the taxi to pass by. And it's just, oh, it's a heartbreaking scene. And then the next morning, he, he walks into the house where Meryl Streep is there, kind of picking up the pieces of the party that he didn't come to. It's just amazing piece of filmmaking because neither of them really speak very much. I don't think she hardly says a word in that whole film. And yet she lights it up. She's so young and beautiful. And there's just that poignancy of these young people and what Vietnam did to their lives. Um, yeah, so I just I love that scene in The Deer Hunter. I think it's magnificent. And then The Way We Were, the Robert Redford, Barbara Streisand version. Yeah, Barbara Streisand, we're going to hear about a lot about her, I think, at the moment. Is there a book or there's something? I, I kind of a sucker for nostalgia. I don't know if people know that film, but it, there, you know, she's a lefty and a Jewish girl and a kind of uh, outsider, and he's the all-American boy, as we all know, the, the quintessential all-American boy. And they meet in college, and they have this wonderful love affair, but they're too different, and it just doesn't work out. And they meet years later on the street, and she's protesting against Vietnam, I think, and he's become respectable and. Uh, it's just a beautiful exercise in nostalgia and in life and, you know, how life just carries people along in different directions. I love that film. Let's hear a clip with Barbara Streisand and Robert Redford. You look at all. Oh, you don't have an iron anymore. What? Your hair. Oh, no, I don't. It's pretty. Thank you. Still married? Sure. What are you doing in New York? Uh, well, I've been writing a television show. Really? Oh, there's an experience. Everything happens so fast. Shoot it all in one day, live, on the air. Everybody running around in a constant state of panic. You remember how it was in the radio. Yeah. Same thing, here. Only with cameras. And craziness. My God, what crazy. Make a great comic novel. Sounds wonderful, huh? Really. The text is ready, sir. Uh, Listen, I'll... I'm awfully late. Um, will you please call and come for a drink, please? It's the only David X. Cohn in the book. Nice to meet you. What's the X for? The only David X. Cohn in the book. Hi, I'm sorry. How are we doing, huh? Oh, wonderful. We've got 122 on 122. that one. Yeah, and Charlene called from downtown. Yeah. She's doing just great. Marvelous. Wonderful. Oh, That's good. a good one, too, yeah. don't you think? What about Eileen? Did you you never give up, do you? Only when I'm absolutely forced to. But I'm a very good loser. Better than I am. 
ahead. More practice. Your girl is lovely, Hubble. Why don't you bring her for a drink when you come? I can't come. way we were with Robert Redford and Barbara Streisand. It's Kathleen McMahon who's with us for the Culture Club. I'm conscious of the clock, so we're going to go to books and it's hard for a novelist to nominate a favourite book, but try. Lots of desperate questions we asked. Um, I chose three. The Age of Innocence. I can choose one. No, go on. The Age of Innocence. Edith Wharton. Just a perfect, perfect portrait of turn of the 20th century New York and the society of strictly strict manners that existed then a love story and just a piece of absolutely perfect writing and um, she creates this world within a short novel a really long novel by Larry McMurtry Lonesome Dove I don't know if you've read it one of those novels that has a big map at the start of the whole of America and it's about two Texas rangers who drive cattle from the Mexican border up to Montana and there is Everything in that book that you could want in a story. Thousand pages of adventure, romance, you name it. I love it. And number three, We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. Dark, gothic horror by this amazing American writer who wrote this in the 1940s. And it is, I mean, in a way that dark, gothic, macabre things can be delicious. It is such a treat. Please, please, please check out We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Okay, what about a favourite author? Um, I think I'm going to say Christine Dwyer Hickey. Um, I admire her work so much. I think she's a beautiful writer. The Cold Eye of Heaven is a wonderful, wonderful book set on the keys, a law clerk, and it's told through his life backwards, chapter by chapter. That's a real favourite of mine. But I think she's a very consistent writer. The most recent one was a story of the painter Edward Hopper and his wife, Beautiful, beautiful story about a summer in their lives and it's called called um, The Narrow Land. So think of a hat to choose one favourite writer, I'd choose Christine. OK. Television. Do you watch much television? Not an awful lot. I mean, like everybody now, I, I mean, I watch the news. I watch box sets. Um, I try not to watch too much because I love to read. And, you know, these screens are all stealing our reading time. But it's tempting because the quality is so high. I mean, yeah, television from being a kid watching Dallas through teen years watching. Remember V? V was brilliant with the aliens coming, the Langoliers. I mean, so I think this craze for TV series isn't new, but it does seem now to really be turning out such incredibly good quality TV. In our house, we've been watching Succession religiously. And I just think the standard of the writing is just gobsmacking. It just gets better with every single episode. And then you get these series finales that are Shakespearean. I mean, it's just stunningly good television. Can't wait. It's only about six weeks before Succession arrives back on our screens for series four. But you mentioned Dallas. So let's have a clip from Dallas in which uh, Linda Gray and Larry Hagman and Mary Crosby feature in the reveal of who shot JR, which is a bit of a spoiler, but 40 years on, hey, look, I think we can do it. And particularly as Mary Crosby, who played Kristen, previously did the Culture Club here for us on The Last Word as Very well. Impressive. So let's hear her. I have finally figured everything out, that's all. You have been trying to frame me. 
you're crazy. You were right. I was at that condo that night, looking for JR. And yes, I did have his gun. But you saw how drunk I was, and you still gave me a drink. Knowing I'd put the gun down to take it. Who's there? You went to the office that night with JR's gun. It was you, Kristen, who shot JR. Then the next morning while I was showering, you hid the gun in the closet. You think you've got it all figured out? Get me the police. I wouldn't do that if I were you, JR. Not unless you want your child born in prison. It was so much fun. I ran a book on Who Shot JR when I was in junior school with my friend Sarah Burke. Did you make money on it? Well, we didn't get caught, which was good. I can't remember if we made money or not. To finish off the Culture Club, Kathleen McMahon, tell us about what we call the sort of hidden treasure, something that you'd like to recommend that perhaps has been a bit overlooked. Yeah, I'm choosing a children's book called The Story of Horace by Alice Coates. And this was a story that we were read to as children. My grandmother had it in her house and my mother. And it's a really dark story. And we loved it as kids. It's about a bear who lives with a family. And the dad, Pa, goes out hunting every day. And every day he comes back and another member of the family is missing. And it turns out that Horace has eaten first great-grandpa and then great-grandma And it's such a fabulous story because I think kids love repetition. There's all this repetition day by day and Pa comes home and somebody else is gone. And there's this catch line that happens. They say, well, something has happened. And what has happened is that Horace has eaten another member of the family. And Pa says, well, Horace, I'm going to have to shoot you. But Horace takes on so that Pa just doesn't have the heart to. And he says, Horace, you know, we're going to give you one last chance. And when we were children, there's the delicious thrill of knowing what's coming next, you know. And Pa goes hunting and Horace is given one last chance and Pa comes back and another member of the family is gone. And I think, you know, it's a real, kids have a really great capacity for dark material. And, you know, maybe things are a bit more sanitised now, but we loved that. And to the extent that Horace became a byword in our family for somebody who you're kind of fond of, but you can't trust. So if you're Horace... It's, mm, you need to be watched. We're going to have to leave it there. Kathleen McMahon, thank you very much for joining us for The Culture Club. And the new novel, your fourth, is The Home Scar. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us on the programme. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.